Hey there, I'm Joanne Tambrakis, and this is Marketing, Mindfulness, and Martinis. Unfiltered conversations, or as I like to say, opinions shaken, not stirred, on what's changing and what's not in business and in life as we enter into the next normal. So pour yourself your beverage of choice, and let's get to it. My conversation this week is with Jack Raham, a strategy facilitator and consultant whose practice has been focused in the healthcare, technology, financial services, and not-for-profit sectors. Jack has worked with clients who include Procter & Gamble and Baylor Healthcare Systems, among a host of others. Now, I met Jack when he was teaching leadership and entrepreneurial courses at NYU. When Jack said he was retiring from teaching at the university, I was really surprised. He is a stellar educator who is very well liked by his students. Plus, Jack has never impressed me as the type to, quote, retire. Turns out I was right. At the age of 80, Jack's idea of retirement has been to turn his volunteer work at the Davidson County Jail in Nashville, where he teaches entrepreneurship to inmates, into the creation of Outside Hustle, which is what we talked about today. So stay tuned for a very inspiring conversation. Jack, it's great to see you. Welcome to the podcast. Joanne, thanks. I've missed seeing you in person when we used to be in New York, but thank you so much. It's good seeing you. Yes, yes, yes. I guess I should put that as a disclaimer that you and I are friends. So it's, um, but then a lot of people that I interview on my podcast are friends. I have lots of friends who are doing lots of fantastic things. So, but before we start into what you're doing right now, my favorite question to start my interviews with is, where are you from? And since this is the first time you're on my podcast and nobody knows who you are, can we start there? First of all, I'm shocked that everyone doesn't know where I'm from, but if I have to go through this, I will for you, Joanne. I grew up in a very small town. The population was 20,000 people in central Massachusetts. It was a furniture town in the good old days, and now it's pretty uh, depressed, but a town called Gardner. Um, and lived in Massachusetts until I moved to Connecticut and then Rhode Island and then the big city. I lived in New York for 20 years. And now you are, where are you? I am living in Nashville, Tennessee, Music City. I've been here for three and a half years. Music City. I know Nashville has definitely been on the on the national map lately, but having just visited there not that long ago, the city of Nashville really is quite a delightful, delightful town. As are most of the people in Nashville. You yes. get out into the countryside and it changes, but uh, my experience here over three and a half years has been uh, meeting some very lovely, smart um, people that uh, that really do understand what's going on in the world and really do want to do the right thing. So I've loved living here. Yeah, no, everybody that we met was just fantastic, and and yes, the music and the food was pretty was pretty pretty darn good. And I am a <laughs> bit of a food snob, so you've had a very successful career and you've got a reputation that really has preceded you, not just as a strategy consultant, but as a master educator. Um, You're one of those people that I imagine will never retire, but rather redesign, which is what it sounds like you're doing now. So you've launched a a new company called OutsideHustle.org. And if I'm not mistaken, this was born out of volunteer work that you were doing at the Davidson County Jail in Nashville. So can you talk about that before we get into you know, the volunteer work, before we get into 
how this new venture sure. came to be? Sure. So I'm flattered by the fact that you're suggesting that this has all been very planned on my part. Um, and I have to say most of the really interesting and fun things that have happened to me in my life and in my career have been almost purely accidental, as was this. Uh, it turns out the recycling center in Nashville is right next to the education building um, for the jail. And I happened to see the sign as I was dropping off uh, cartons from our move, called the jail, started uh, doing volunteering in person, uh, Microsoft Office. And then the pandemic hit and I stopped going in in person and I stopped doing Microsoft Office because I was feeling good about myself. Here's Jack helping out at the jail. And at the same time, I wasn't feeling like I bent the needle one, one iota. Um, I became friends with Sybil Pruitt, who manages the entire education program for all of Davidson County. And I called her. I said, Sybil, uh, use me, do something. She said, have you ever taught entrepreneurship? And I said, well, I are one. And I've been <laughs> teaching it. I've been teaching it for most of my life. And yeah, let's do it. And out of that conversation came uh, what I'm doing now, which is six sessions, an hour and a half uh, each. And I'm just finishing up this coming Wednesday with my fifth cohort of about 15, uh, in this case, all guys, 15 guys each. And the outsidehustle.org is an attempt to spread this program uh, by training other people and other institutions how to, how to deliver it. And I'm providing content and, and guidance uh, in that regard. But at, you mentioned as we get older, I am turning 80 in January. I have no intention, no intention of starting a, uh, a nonprofit, no intention of getting on a plane if I don't need to. But this is a way for me to expand and make a difference in people's lives by leveraging what I know and what I do to other people. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And people can't see you because this is a completely audio podcast, but you would never believe in a million years that my friend Jack over here is turning 80 because he certainly doesn't look that or nor do you have the energy. Well, you have the energy of this is the new 80. That's what it is. This is this is the new 80. The new eight, what the 80 is the new 60 or something like that. It's kind of crazy like that. So you're everything you're doing is online. Is that correct? That's correct. I've considered, in fact, just had a conversation with the folks at the uh, at the jail about doing the next semester in person. I can't describe the the chemistry of this, but it, I believe it works better online than it would in person. Um, and it's as far as I can go. I have no analysis to prove it, no data mm -hmm. to prove it. So we're going to continue doing it online. And what it allows me to do is to focus an hour and a half on Wednesdays and leave room before and after for other meetings and, and other things that I have to do. When, as you, as you know, Joanne, when I moved to Nashville, I taught at NYU online for about three and a half years and feel as if I've gotten very comfortable in, in that environment, have created a bunch of tools that I use for that environment. And I think I'm at least as effective online as I would be in person. And when it comes to the program I'm teaching at the jail, maybe even more so. Yeah, well, you really, as I remember it, because you helped me a lot when we were moving on to online, and you really seem to have perfected that part of it. 
But I want to just stop there for a second because there was a question I had later, but we'll pull it in right now, is that you have taught graduate students at NYU and at the new school, um, which is a whole different caliber of student than what you're teaching now. So have you had to change your style or or have you not? Does it just Jack still who um, he is? Because it's a different well, student. <laughs> it's, you know, the students that NYU gets and the new school gets tend to be more, I, I don't even know if the word privilege is right, because they're not all highly privileged, but they're certainly not in jail. So let me take that question into two parts. The first part is, and I've when I was teaching at NYU, I told my students who are out job searching the same thing. If you're not yourself every minute of every day, your authentic self, you have nothing to bring to the table. It's the way you differentiate yourself. So when I do consulting, when I taught at NYU, and now when I teach at the jail, my style, my choice of words, my choice of concepts is identical. And to be honest with you, the first time I taught at the jail, I wasn't sure if that was going to play or not because they come from different backgrounds. I have not had to change one thing about this course because these folks are incarcerated. They're, some of them are brilliant. I almost said brilliant and stopped, but it's true. They're brilliant. They're committed. And I would say one of the things that differentiates them from some of the students that you just described as being somewhat uh, you know, sort of, in, I, I'm going to use the word entitled. These folks are so grateful for the opportunity to learn, but also the opportunity to change the arc of their lives moving forward. So there's a completely different energy in this room when I teach these folks. And on their own, they meet one day a week to go over the class notes, read the book, and help each other, mentor each other with their projects. And um, so by the time I get them on Wednesday mornings, they've done all the work. It's already been discussed and they have a thousand and two questions. And it's just incredibly invigorating. So you assign them projects. Is there any projects in particular that you're particularly proud of? Well, um, the way it works is I ask them to think about something that they're passionate about. And, and many of them come in with a business idea. Some of them don't. And I tell them that unless you find something you're passionate about, when you have to get out of bed on Monday morning, it's going to be hard. But if you're passionate about something, then the ability to get yourself motivated at 6 a.m. on a Monday is radically different. So I'll just mention a few uh, in terms of um, actually there are two that I'm really proud of. One of them. Um, and this particular individual found it very difficult to speak in class. He is not at all. And it's not a uh, English is a second language issue. He just doesn't feel fluent uh, when he speaks. Mm -hmm. And he is starting a publishing company to publish books with minorities as role models and superheroes. And wow. so during the semester, um, understanding that he was struggling, um, I would expect two or three words from him in, in an answer. And they were always great words, but they weren't flowery paragraphs. At the end of the semester, he said, I, I really can't present, but I'd like to read my mission statement to you. Now, these are inmates sitting around the table, 14 mm -hmm. other guys and myself, he read one of the most beautiful mission statements I've ever read in my life and got a standing ovation 
from his classmates. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So so that is one of them. The other is um, a student I have this semester and he he wants to do what I'm doing. He wants to teach entrepreneurship to disadvantaged people. And he's brilliant and he's articulate. And I've given all of them my email address and I've told this particular individual, when you're ready, you're going to get in touch with me and we're going to find a way to work together. Either I will help him get started or I will bring him in and make him part of this organization. The rest of them are things like uh, cleaning services, uh, body shop work, um, a freight and moving company, a lighting contractor. They're the kinds of things that you would expect people in their late teens and early 20s to choose for careers, these folks are choosing to start businesses in those areas. And you mentioned the website, um, uh, the, the website address, but one of the sections of the website is a list of the product. Uh, try that again. The list of the projects that the students have, have chosen over the last five semesters. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things when I was doing my research here, um, which I will admit that I have now found a use for chat GPT um, that I really um, now I, I might it, it's opened up a whole whole different aspect of it. But um, the, the United States has one of the highest incarceration rates in the world. And in fact, according to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, at the end of 2020, there were an estimated one point eight million people incarcerated in the U.S., which is noticeably higher than other developed nations. And one of the, which is kind of crazy to start out with, but one of the things also, and I think you speak about this on your website as well, and my research showed it is the re-entry process. So mm -hmm. then entrepreneurship becomes so much, a much easier road to re-enter. Am I correct in that? Because you don't have to worry about anyone necessarily hiring you. Um, but then again, you probably need a bank loan. So I don't know. Can you talk about so that? So I'm going to give you a three-part answer to that one-part question. <laughs> uh, the, the first part is, um, yes, it is more difficult for these folks to get employment. Now I want to link that to what you asked earlier about Nashville. I have been shocked and delighted by the number of business owners that I've spoken to who, when I tell them what I'm doing and ask, would you be open to hiring these folks without hesitation, will say, yes, mm -hmm. I absolutely would love to give these, in this case, guys. By the way, let me interrupt myself. One of the things I'm doing with this organization is to try to expand it to women as well. Mm -hmm. And so I'm hopeful maybe one of your listeners is interested in getting involved in that in that way. But so the community here is surprisingly open to hiring these folks. And then I know and you know that just teaching them entrepreneurial skills is not enough. So mm -hmm. I've lined up about 25 local mentors. Um, I've lined up another five former students who have all volunteered to be mentors, and we're beginning to work with a local bank. We're still looking at the structure, but it, I think it's going to be microloans, similar to if you're familiar with Kiva.com. Uh, and so what I'm trying to do is to build a, uh, a scaffolding around them where they've got support, mentoring support, and also um, financial uh, support to get started. So in, in your experience, working with these individuals, and you're saying most of the incarcerated individuals you're working with are men? All of the ones I'm working with are men. It's the nature of this particular facility. 
Has it changed your impression of, you know, what the stereotypical person is that gets locked up? Yes. <laughs> and as you know, I'm a pretty smart guy. And I yeah, just Jack do. likes to, for those who don't know, Jack <laughs> likes to say he's the smartest person in the room. In the world now. And, oh, oh it. now it's in the world. It's in the world. I'm a smart guy and I was committed to not dumbing down this course at all. And I just figured it would be a pretty hard slog that I would have to repeat things and go to my whiteboard without question. These are some of the smartest students and individuals I've ever worked with. There's one individual his, uh, whose name is Ivan, and I cannot mention a book or a podcast. And he will just, without boasting, just mention, oh, did you hear the episode last week? Or I love the chapter in. He's one of the, the most well-read people um, I've ever encountered. Now, qu full stop here. To give you an idea of the quality of these people, Ivan has been in my class five times now. The first time as a student. And since then, he mentors, comes into class, and he's sort of like my graduate assistant, mentors the other men. And the word I'm getting from the administration is he is helping them get over whatever humps there are, language, background, context, whatever experience. And so I've had this inside uh, ally, if you will. But the thing that I've most been shocked by is the intelligence and commitment of these folks. And I'm going to add one more thing to it. My mother passed in July, 102 years old. Unbelievable. In her sleep. And I had to miss class. And I came into class via Zoom the following Wednesday. The biggest guy in the room stopped me in mid-sentence and said, you need to stop talking. We have something to say. And they held up a flip chart sheet. And every student had signed their names. And at the top, it, was, it, it said, we're sorry for your loss. Ah. So it's also, it's mind and heart. Those are the things that have surprised me the most. And I thought I was pretty liberal and, and I hadn't really stereotyped any of these guys. I was so far off by a, by a magnitude of two. Yeah. It's that, it's that thing. I think that's the subject of the, uh, how to be an anti-racist book, um, which I'm, escaping the gentleman who wrote it, but it's like, it, even when we think, not that it, this is a racist thing, but we get these preconceived notions, even when we think that we're very open um, yep. and we don't realize it till we're confronted with it, but you're really doing amazing stuff. So you have all different types of programs now on the site from not just yes. teaching these, the, 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 um, the incarcerated. And you did say you're expanding to in immigrants and women's groups. Yes, I have a dear friend who's actually a high school classmate of mine. Now we're going to go full circle back to Gardner, Massachusetts, who works with immigrants in New York City. And she sat in on one of my introductory programs and wants to bring this uh, program to immigrants. And the, the other part of my history is I'm the grandson of Lebanese immigrants who came here in 1910. Um, and I have seen firsthand the difference that owning your own business can make my my uncles and my dad all were entrepreneurs. And so I'm beginning to work with Natalie on how we bring this program to immigrants. And when I began talking with her, I realized anyone who's at a disadvantage, anyone who's been disadvantaged, um, this program can be easily shaped to meet the needs 
they have for learning how to start and, and be successful in their own business. So the, the programs I'm, um, I'm, that are listed on the website is one, speaking to organizations that, and this is really the sweet spot for me, rather than trying to do individual after individual, speaking to, individual, uh, speaking to organizations that want to bring this program in-house and offer it to some population, uh, women. Um, inmates, uh, immigrants, whatever it is. And so this isn't rather than just them reading the website, I will zoom in with them and introduce the program. And then the next piece is train the trainer, because as I said, I don't want to be spreading myself too thin. So it's taking everything I've learned, including the slides for what was nine hours worth of teaching um, and making those available. And then training mentors, because one of the things I've noticed is when people mentor in this environment, they come in with this mindset of, I'm their salvation. Wait till they get a load of me and wait till <laughs> I show them what I know. And it's it's deathly. Uh, these guys, and, and I'm assuming women, will shut, up, shut off that message immediately. And so I want to train the mentors how to approach these folks, including what you asked me about a moment ago, and that is if you have a preconception that these guys and women are not very bright and you're going to have to hold their hand, get rid of that right now. And I'll show them some work that my students have done to sort of uh, back mm -hmm. that up. And then you mentioned online teaching. Um, I'm also offering a course, not the content of which is not about uh, entrepreneurship solely, but it's about how to teach online and how to use some of the technologies and techniques mm -hmm. that I've uh, developed. And then um, I'm also offering my online uh, setup. So this is something you and I have talked about. What do I use for cameras? How do I use a whiteboard? Because mm -hmm. you, you and I both know the whiteboard on Zoom is ridiculous. So I actually <laughs> have a physical whiteboard on my desk that I use. So it's, it's tips, tips of... Uh, and tricks of, of teaching online. So those are the programs that I've uh, I've created and I'm offering on the website. And then over time, I'm sure that list will morph, get larger, get smaller, based on what people uh, say they need. Would you consider what you're doing an, an example of social entrepreneurship for yourself or for actually creating this, that you're doing something in that respect? Here's the interesting thing. When I first came up with this idea, I said, look, I'm going to be monetizing the work that I'm doing with, mm -hmm. with uh, uh, these students. So I said to the students, I'm thinking of doing this thing. What do you think? And they said, you've been doing this for free. You should, first of all, monetize it because I've been teaching them how to monetize what they already know and love. Mm -hmm. And um, second of all, if I can get this program socialized, um, in a number of locations. The one thing I hear is feedback, Joanne, all the time from my students, and especially Ivan, who has now seen five cohorts, is you are giving these guys hope. Mm. Oh, You're giving goodness. them hope. And so they're able to see beyond tomorrow. And I've actually had one, three, in, three uh, students now, you notice my change of language there, three students who have said to me, when we put together our vision diagram, I suddenly realized that everything in my life that seemed too big, I would give up on or try to find a shortcut on. When I put it down on paper in a vision diagram, I suddenly realized, you know, I can chip away at this a piece at a time. So yeah, it's been, it's been a remarkable set of 
additional learnings beyond just entrepreneurship. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. But is is this a nonprofit? So I know you're monetizing it. You know, a lot of people don't realize that even if you're a nonprofit, you still have to figure out a way to monetize to to get the pro- nonprofit to survive. So how was that operating? Or is this not a nonprofit? Because I'm a little it, confused. It is, no, and <laughs> it's, it's a very common question. Whenever I talk to people, they'll say, well, what are you? Are you a 501? No, no, no. I am Jack and I am <laughs> looking to leverage leverage this program. I don't want to get, I've been an, uh, an organizational consultant excuse me, most of my career, I don't want to get into organization. What I want to do is, look, I've got this material. I've got these learnings. Mm-hmm. If you're interested, I'm happy to share them with you. If someone comes to the door, that's great. And if they don't, the core of what I'm doing is teaching every Wednesday with this wonderful group of folks. So I am not organizing. And the the monetization is basically the programs that I listed a moment ago. You'll see on the website, I'm charging a modest amount for people to attend those. Um, but yeah, I'm not looking, I'm, I'm very comfortably retired. I'm not looking to make a million dollars doing this. Um, I just want this program to spread. And do you think that you, what you're doing, could you record these and have this be a self-paced situation? Do you think it would work as well? Or is there, does it need to have an individual leading the group as well? I think it needs to have an individual and uh, actually, your question triggers another thing I wanted to say. Many people teach entrepreneurship by getting into the financial nitty gritties. And let's start a lemonade stand and let's see what our cost of goods are and let's see what our expenses are. And I literally spend one half of one class on finances. Because in my experience, that is a that is a cause of failure. But the biggest cause of failure is not having a vision for what you want to do, not having a business model. So I use something called the business model campus and not having strategies. I'm teaching these folks the mindset of being an entrepreneur because they can pick up this other stuff, the accounting and the the P&L and all of that. They can pick that up somewhere else. What no one is teaching these folks is how to think like an entrepreneur. And, and I keep asking them the questions right out of the business model campus. What is your value proposition? which I only have to define for them once. What is your value proposition? Why should anyone care? And why should I do business with you rather than your competition? And then we start talking about your field of expertise, branding, and how are you going to brand yourself today so that brand still works five years from now? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, I think it requires someone for that give and take. And I've thought about doing video. That video might be better than nothing, but it's not as good as having someone involve them in a conversation about their ideas. Yeah. I mean, I I have mixed feelings about self-paced education to start out with, because I think people start doing their laundry while they're, while they're listening and they're not really paying. No, I, I, you know, maybe I'm speaking from my own experience. If I'm listening to something and there's not a real human being there, I'm wandering around my apartment, figuring out something else to do. But I would imagine that, especially in the case of, of, these, which are all underrepresented groups that you're talking about now, from the, mm-hmm. the incarcerated to now getting into immigrants, and you know, women have historically been un- underestimate underrepresented. That you need that connection, you need that personal connection to to motivate you to say, "Hey, this, you can do this." 
The other thing that it's hard to talk about this with without sounding like a full blown jerk, but you've known me long <laughs> enough to know that I never back away from that precipice. But there's <laughs> something about what these guys get from me being there with them every week mm-hmm. that translates into respect. And oh, by the way, Jack thinks we're smart. Mm-hmm. So I've never heard that from anyone else in my life. I've heard mostly just the opposite. And Jack thinks my idea is a good idea. And we respect Jack and we know he hasn't lied to us yet. So I'm just going to believe that my idea is good and I'm smart enough to do it. And then from that comes the hope that says, hey, I'm, be- I, I'm better than I've been. And I can tra- I can change my life into something that I've never even dreamt about before. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, I can totally see that, but I also, as you're saying that I'm thinking about your reputation at NYU because we had a lot of similar students and that is something that you brought there as well. So maybe that is also the difference in teaching a class like this is who is that person that's leading it? I, I, and that's, that's a critical point. There is some magic that happens when I interact with these folks mm-hmm. and and Ivan said to me after the first class, Jack, you don't seem intimidated by us at all. And I said, Ivan, I'm about eight miles away from you on a computer. I, I'm pretty <laughs> sure I'm safe. I said, but what you need to realize is this mutual respect here. I know that you guys respect what I do and you know, I respect and I, I feel the respect back from you guys. It's it's a system of respect that you have to build. And I don't think everyone is capable of doing mm-hmm. that. And I'm, and, I, and I'm struggling with exactly what the components of that are. But it's one of the limiters of this program is finding the right people to teach. I've already got two, and that is Ivan and this other gentleman that I mentioned that, uh, that wants to compete with me. Um, I know those guys could do it. They're smart enough and they can relate to people because of their own backgrounds. I clearly don't think having that background is a requirement, but having some, I know enough about you and your students at NYU to know that you care about your students, Mm -hmm. you develop a relationship with them and you're straight with them. You don't lie to them. You don't blow smoke at them and you don't mail it in. You work really hard. And I think if you find people like that, they will make this program work. Yeah. So thank you for those compliments. And they, I also think it's the person has to believe enough in humanity that you can see that these people are in jail right now, but that doesn't mean that that's their whole story. You know, you have to believe that there is a human being there that for whatever reason, you know, th- their life went astray. That doesn't mean that it has to be like that till the till the end of their life. That there is actually so, hope for them. And not everyone, not everyone sees that. You know, there's a there. You know that there's so many preconceived notions in the world right now, and you have to be open to the to that idea. You know, I still believe that basically all humans are good people. We tend mm-hmm. to fall astray. It's a little harder these days because the world's so nuts. But I think that's part of it too. Is like, who is? Are you going to believe in that? Pe- those people. So I have a friend from Denmark. You know me. I'm very shy. I don't make friends easily. Right, but I met either. him me in, <laughs> in Nashville. <laughs> he was here on vacation in Nashville. And um, so we Zoomed the other day. And I was telling him about this program. And I said, these guys are so smart, Chris. He said, well, if they're so smart, why are they in jail? And I said, you know, there but for the grace of God, I said, think back on your life. 
Is there ever a time when you were just one degree away from being incarcerated? He said, no. Turns out he's an airline pilot. No. Oh, he said that was that little matter of insurance fraud. And he wasn't joking. And he suddenly realized that any of us could be in this in this Mm -hmm. situation. It all it takes is a few minutes with these folks to realize there's a lot of humanity and a lot of intelligence there. And those that have self-selected to be in this program, they want something better for themselves. They tell me at the during the first class, one of the reasons they're in this class is to create generational wealth. They want to be able to transfer wealth to their children and their grandchildren. And it, you can see it coming or you can hear it coming from their heart. Mm-hmm. It's what they are. And once you experience that, a lot of the stereotypes just just uh, wash away. Mm, it's kind of interesting. So how do you see this evolving over time? You kind of touched on that a little bit. Um, this is your legacy. Well, yes, I would hope it's part of my legacy. And um, I would see it that I guess for me, the a win would be. This program gets replicated in a number of different facilities in a number of different states. I'm meeting with the folks from Davidson County to talk about how to expand it within Davidson County. Mm-hmm. We then want to expand it within Tennessee, and then they want me to attend national conferences with them to talk about expanding it nationwide. So there's the expansion of the number of these things going on. Mm-hmm. The other thing is something you've already touched upon. I want to expand it to other populations, women, um, immigrants, and other people who are, for whatever reason, less fortunate than I've been. I grew up in a family that valued education. Mm-hmm. I had an entrepreneur for a father. I mean, that's that's right there as a PhD in in starting a business is is watching what my dad went through, good and bad. And so there are lots of people that have never had a role model in their lives. Um, and I'd love to see this spread to as many places and as many populations as as possible. I hope you've trademarked trademarked this thing. <laughs> I have. <laughs> You have good, 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 as, good. As Steve Jobs said when he introduced the uh, the touch screen on the iPhone, and you can bet we've patented the hell out of it. <laughs> All right. So, um, I on a totally different note, I always like to end these things with a little lightning round of fun questions. All right. So here we go. Um, your favorite social network? You're talking about technology wise. Well, that was the question, but you can answer it however you like because it's your choice. Okay. Well, it's my choice. It's nothing online, although I do use Facebook a lot for my other side hustle. Um, and so for marketing an idea like this other side hustle, uh, Facebook is wonderful. I'm a member of a group of about 15,000 people, and I sell a lot of product as a result of that relationship. But, oh, and I, I'm on LinkedIn. Who isn't? My favorite social network is a place in Nashville called L&L Market. I go there almost every day. I set up my office in one of the common tables, and I have met about 25 people, one of whom is going to be doing pro bono marketing work for me and video work for me. I find it is a powerful way to network with people. And I think we're losing that as people. We're much too dependent upon the technologies, and we've Mm -hmm. forgotten how to just go up to someone and say, hey, what are you doing? How are you doing? Let's talk. 
I so, yeah, love my favorite that. social social network is uh, L&L Market. I love that answer. Okay, something people would never guess about you, but you're such an open book. Let's see what, come, what you give me for this. I was an incredible basketball player in high school. And the, your, your uh, listeners can't see me. I'm exactly five foot seven. But I was uh, molded in the in the uh, in the style of Bob Cousy. <laughs> the last series that you binged. This is going to I'm going to give you two because they're at either end of the spectrums. Um, one was Formula One F1 Drive to Survive on Netflix. I don't know if you've seen it or not. It's not about racing, but it is. It's about the relationship between the drivers, each other, their managers, their technical teams, the owners. It's a soap opera, and it's an actual documentary of Formula One. And uh, we've been binge-watched that in order to catch up. And now we're actually watching the uh, the races live. And if you had said to me a year ago, you'll be watching Formula One, I would have said you're crazy. But it is the most engaging thing uh, we've watched. And like everyone else, Ted Lasso, not only have we watched it, we've binged it another two or three times. <laughs> can can I, the, now yeah. that it, I want to add one more thing that isn't a binge, but we just stumbled on on Apple TV. Sure. And it's called The Boy, The Mole, The Fox. And the horse. Wasn't that a little children's book? Yes. And they've turned it into one of the most beautiful animated features you'll ever see. It just won a major award. And we watched it by ourselves. And then our granddaughter was over yesterday. Oh, I don't want to watch that. Let's watch Frozen. I said, tell you what, five minutes into this, we'll change it if you don't like it. She was spellbound. Wow. Okay. There you go. Uh, Food you can't live without. Well, my heritage is Lebanese, so if I don't get my Lebanese fix once a month, and there are, there's a really great restaurant here in uh, Nashville. Um, let's see, what else? Like pasta, like pizza. So it's a Mediterranean diet. A Mediterranean diet. What you miss most about pre-COVID life? Nothing. Nothing, okay. Nothing. And what, what motivates you to get up in the morning, Jack? I just have a an unspoken rule that I, if I don't love something, I don't do it. And so the result of that is, is, you know, I can't say a hundred percent, 90% of what I do, I love, including having this conversation with you today, a conversation I had before with a former client Wednesday morning, teaching my students. Um, and I don't know how people who don't have a passion for what they do. I don't know how they get out of bed in the morning. I certainly <laughs> couldn't. I don't either, because my my philosophy is even when you love what you do and you're passionate about it, there are days when you're not going to be. It's just it's yep. just the way that it is. So, you know, when you start with that, it just makes every makes life easier and a lot more fun. So how can our listeners find you online and learn more about Outside Hustle? Where would you suggest okay. they go first? So, first of all, um, are you able to put the link, the URL in your show notes? All the links, anything you want will be in the show notes. Okay, so the the website is outsidehustle.org. So it's just like side hustle with the word out in front of it. And that, I believe, is the website's about three weeks old now, I believe will give people a foundation mm -hmm. uh, in addition to this podcast of what this program is about. And there is a contact me uh, capability there. And folks can write me. And I'm open to anything 
that will make a difference through teaching entrepreneurship. Well, Jack, thank you so much. I really love what you're doing. You're you're making a difference in the world. And um, that's what it's all about. So thank you for your time. Thank you so much. It's been, first of all, lovely seeing you again. And second of all, I appreciate the opportunity to get the word out about this program. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to Marketing Mindfulness and Martinis. If you liked what you heard, please share with your friends. Give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify so other people can find us and hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. If you've got a question you'd like answered or a topic you'd like me to cover, please drop me a note. Info at joannetombrakis.com. And until next time, remember, whatever got you to where you are isn't enough to keep you there. Mm